Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, this is what God's word says. As they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him and that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, Father, we ask that you would attune our ears to hear the truth that you have spoken for us and that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Help us by your spirit to hear your voice speaking, not the voice of mere man. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we read the Bible, one of the most important rules for proper interpretation is to pay close attention to the context. Not only because of the danger of taking something out of context and so misinterpreting it and falling into error, but because it's the context of a passage that really colors in for us the point that is being made. In other words, when we pay attention to the context, we can hear more clearly what God is saying through that text, what he wants us to know and understand. And so here in this parable of the ten minas, before we jump into the parable itself and look at what Jesus said, it's important that we pay attention to verse 11, which tells us why Jesus said it, which is that it was because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, throughout Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus repeatedly say, we're going up to Jerusalem, that's where I'm headed, and it's all going to happen in Jerusalem, everything will be accomplished there. Remember back in chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus said very plainly that there in Jerusalem, I finish my course. 
And so as they were approaching Jerusalem, the disciples perhaps were, were thinking, well, oh boy, here it comes. We're about to reach the climax of Jesus revealing his full power and authority as the King and Messiah. I mean, we've seen some amazing things thus far. We've seen him healing the blind and raising the dead and all kinds of spectacular displays of divine power. But if Jerusalem is where everything will be culminated, oh my goodness, it's going to be wonderful. He's going to usher in the full power of his kingdom and we can't wait for that grand utopia to finally come. In fact, it says in verse 11 that as they heard these things, Jesus told them this parable. Now, what are the, these things that they heard? What's well, whatever came before? Presumably what Jesus just said in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, when they, these Jews, they heard Son of Man, they would have immediately known and understood this to be a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, in which the prophet sees this vision that there came one like a son of man who, having come with the clouds of heaven, to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom over all nations. And so in having that scriptural memory triggered, they would have been all the more excited for the final unleashing of God's kingdom through this son of man whom they knew Jesus to be. And Jesus knew that they had this notion, this supposition, that the kingdom of God in full force was going to come all at once, once he enters into Jerusalem. And so it's in this context that Jesus hits the brakes and tells them this parable. So as to say, guys, that's not what it's going to be like. Instead, let me tell you what it's going to be. In just a little while, you're not going to see me anymore. Because I'm leaving this world, I'm going back to the Father which Jesus would soon tell them plainly in the upper room discourse, as we see in John chapter 16. And he says, don't worry, you'll see me again. I will return one day. But in the meantime, this parable is saying, you must live in the waiting because the full consummation of my kingdom is not yet. It's not immediate. And this, this delay of the kingdom, this interim period of waiting is not because there was some unfortunate glitch in God's plan but it's by design. That's what this parable is explaining. That God has purposefully ordained an interim period until all the promises of his kingdom are fully realized. And among several reasons as to why he has done that, the key reason that's the focus of this parable is that Jesus has entrusted the work of his kingdom to his people while he is away and while we wait for his return. And he is calling us to get busy with it. This is what our lives are to be about. And this is why at the moment of our salvation, we weren't just immediately translated into heaven. But he purposefully kept us here on earth for a distinct purpose of working as stewards of his kingdom. You see, church, through this parable, Jesus is telling us very simply to remember that heaven is not yet. Don't live your life trying to establish your heaven and resting place here on earth. Your ultimate rest is yet to come and it will surely come and it will be glorious. But in the meanwhile, we are called to be busy with our Father's business. We are to understand that the reason we live and the reason God has left us here and not taken us yet but is giving us yet another day of breath and life on earth 
is so that we might do something with it each day for the sake of his kingdom. This is the purpose of life on earth. And it's the immense privilege of being able to partake in his kingdom. And we see in this parable what an unimaginable blessing it is to serve him and to belong to his kingdom. And all the glories that await those whom he finds as faithful stewards upon his return. Because every joy and blessing is found only in his kingdom. But because that's the case, there is also the tragic misery of rejecting him and being outside of his kingdom. And being devoid of all joy and blessing and life and peace. Now the parable begins in verse 12 as Jesus tells about a nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now it's clear that Jesus is referring to himself. He is the nobleman in this parable. And that the going to the far country is his ascension, him ascending back to the father. And we know this because passages like Hebrews chapter 10 verses 12 to 13 make it very explicit. That when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, quoting from Psalm 110. And when God's kingdom purpose has been fulfilled in redemptive history, then at his appointed time, Christ will return to bring the consummation of his kingdom on earth. And until then, we live in these appointed days of waiting for that day. But This age of waiting in which we now live is not some aimless period of meandering, just kicking rocks until Jesus comes back. But we see in verse 13 that there is a distinct purpose for this interim, which is that calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Now, a mina was a type of Greek currency worth about three or four months of wages. But what's important here is not the monetary value of each mina, but rather how it's distributed here. Notice it says 10 of his servants were called and he gave them 10 minas, meaning he gave them one mina each. In other words, everyone received the exact same trust, which then begs the question, what is this mina representing? Well, it's not referring here, per se, to our belongings, our resources, our giftedness. I mean, it's related, but it's not that per se, because this is a different parable from the parable of the talents. It's very similar, but there are clear differences, because in the parable of the talents, some receive more than others. Some receive five talents, some receive two, some receive one. But here in the parable of the minas, everyone receives the same deposit, and that being one mina. Which tells us then that this mina is referring to the gospel. It's what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard the good deposit which has been entrusted to you. Which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that goes for every believer. We've all received the same good deposit. The one gospel. Now what are we to do with it? Well Jesus says parabolically through the lips of this nobleman. Engage in business. Until I come. That is to say, tend to my work on my behalf. Orient your life around the ministry of the gospel. This is to be, the gospel is to be your life's work. Not your career, not your 
building up of net worth or what, what have you, not your fun experiences, although those are great things, but ultimately that your life's work would be solely about the gospel. And that Jesus, by giving this, he has entrusted his very own gospel agenda to us, his people. Now, we need to take a moment to consider what an act of incredible grace this is. Now, I think sometimes we can hear God's calling for us to serve him with our lives and to work for his kingdom. And it's easy to, to regard that as a demanding responsibility that's required of us, a burdensome requirement. But note that that's how the rebellious citizens in this parable thought. That's how the world thinks. Look in verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him. Why? Why was there such hostility and enmity brewing inside? Because they said, we do not want this man to reign over us. This is a description of the unbelieving world. This is what unbelief is. It's resisting God's authority. Why? Why does the world reject God as king? Why do these citizens say something like this? It's because fundamentally they don't believe how good God is. They believe the lie of the devil, that God's commands, his authority, his governing rule is oppressive. That they are chains that need to be unfettered as though he were a harsh slave master. It's what Psalm 2 says, how the kings of earth conspire against God and against his anointed, his Christ, his Messiah, And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, what they're saying is, we need to rip off the shackles that God has placed on us and liberate ourselves from the ropes that are suffocating us. That's how they view God and his authority. You see, unbelief is rooted in a mischaracterization of God as though he were a tyrannical ruler like Pharaoh who oppresses his people. But what is God actually like? What kind of king is he? Well, he is the one who so loves his subjects, who is so near to his subjects that he stewards his very own rule and reign to them. That's why he calls us to engage in business until he comes because it's his business his affairs that he entrusts to us. God, in such intimate love for his people, he he shares his own glory with us by calling us to share in his kingly rule and reign. That's what it means to partake in the work of his kingdom. It's to partake in the king's own work, to sit with him on his throne, as it were. You see, this is the grace and kindness of God for every one of his children. And it's out of his abundant generosity and goodwill that he calls his children to spend their lives on earth to do the work of his kingdom because he has so lovingly entrusted such a precious thing to them. Now, what does that mean? What does it look like to work for his kingdom? Well, again, it means for the totality of our lives to gravitate around this central ambition, which is to know Christ more deeply And to make him known more broadly. That whatever we do, whatever season or occupation God has assigned to us on earth at the present time. That we would live understanding that everything 
is to be subsumed under our ultimate life's work, which is to promote the gospel first in our own hearts and then into the hearts of others. It's to partake in every way that we can in the advancement of the gospel in this world. This is our Father's business, which He has now so lovingly assigned to us His people. Christian, you must understand that your life is one big stewardship and everything in it is meant to be employed for the purpose of supporting the ministry of gospel truth. That's why you're here on earth. That's why you're still here on earth. And if God deemed that your work was done, then He would take you. But the very fact that you still live and breathe, it is God saying the job is not done yet. And listen, this is what gives to us excitement and spice to life, which can otherwise be very ordinary and feel aimless. Look, some of you, your job may not be the most fun thing in the world. I get that. I mean, I I love my job. I'm not saying, you know. But I understand. I know what it's like to work in, in the workforce, and it may not always be pretty and easy and fun. And for you, it's just a job that gives you a paycheck, and you think, well, how am I supposed to glorify God in this? How am I supposed to do this in an eternally significant way? Well, have you considered that even the uninteresting job of yours is precisely what God has assigned to you that it might be used to serve the greater purpose of gospel ministry. How so? Well, for one, there's the obvious thing that there are co-workers in, uh, in, in your midst to share the gospel with. But let's just say that your objection is, well, but my job, it's kind of hard to build relationships because it's all remote now and I just, I'm sitting at, uh, at my desk at home and it's all I do. I don't even leave my room and I just stare at a, at a screen all day. Okay, fine. Then have you considered that even in the most ordinary of ways, how your job is the God-appointed channel of Him entrusting His money to you via your hard-earned wages, so that with it you would be the means by which the gospel ministry of His church would be sustained and grown over the years. And that without all of your jobs, this church and many churches would have, would have had to close its doors a long time ago. And there would be one less gospel-preaching church in the Tri-Valley. Now, when we view it like this, suddenly this changes how we look and consider our jobs. Suddenly, the mundane 9-to-5 life of sitting at a desk has been imbued with eternal significance. You're actually working for the Lord, not for people. Now, what an amazing mystery of God's providence that even through such ordinary means, we could play a critical role in heavenly work on this side of eternity. You see, in Christ, even the mundane things of life find so much richer meaning and bigger purpose. Now, look, maybe you're retired, and you say, well, what about me then? I'm not working anymore, thank God, but what about me? I know many retired folks in the world struggle with this thought. What do I do with all this time? It's so easy to feel purposeless. But for you, Christian, what a precious gift of time. Time to slow down from the busyness of life, working, raising kids, all of that, to now quiet your soul in deeper prayerfulness and devotion to God. And with all this time that you have, that God has given to you, you can and you must use it for the sake of the church, to disciple others in the church. Open up your home. 
Share your life and living testimony to the younger generation. That's how you play a vital role in the building up of God's church. That by your encouragement and fellowship, these younger folks, these younger families might be reminded of God's enduring faithfulness over decades, which your life is a living example of. And that by that, they would be strengthened in their marriages. That they would be exhorted to persevere in raising up their children in the instruction of the gospel. Share with the younger generation your joys and your sorrows. Share with them your successes and failures. But above all, share the steadfast love of God that has never wavered in and through all the joys and sorrows, all of the ups and downs in your life. That is how the church is built up, by your gospel ministry. Look, for the older folks, I, I encourage you, don't be shy. Invite people into your lives. You know, maybe some of us are good at being sacrificial with our money and, and bless your heart for that. But perhaps what the Lord wants to challenge and, and shape us in is the stinginess with our time, relationships, hospitality, or privacy. Well, look, this is your father's business entrusted to you. Time and experience and life has been entrusted to you to be used to bless others within his church. And look, if you feel like you lack what is needed to adequately disciple other people, then devote this ample time that God has given you to actively learn and study and grow so that you'd be able to. Don't, don't, don't use inadequacy as an excuse for idleness. But listen, with all this said, well, consider what an awesome thing it is to be a Christian. Because life is never boring. You know, many people in the world struggle with this at the end of the day. Honestly, it's boredom. They don't know what to do. They don't know why they're here. Why do, why do they live? What's tomorrow about? I don't know. And so they just occupy themselves with whatever fun, fancy thing just to distract themselves from the fact they are aimless. But every Christian has such a purpose-filled mission. There's always good work to do. Always a goal to strive for. Always something new to learn. Something new God is doing in us and teaching us and using us for. You see, church, this is the purpose of our lives on earth. To do the work of the gospel. Our life is, is an assignment that's been stewarded to us. And he has called us to be faithful to the task and not lose sight of his kingdom work being our ultimate purpose in life. And this is what Jesus is pressing upon his disciples to this parable with utmost urgency and importance because when he returns, these days of waiting that characterize our lives will then conclude with the day of reckoning and accounting. In verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. In the last day, when Christ returns, everyone will be summoned to him. And they will give an account of their lives of what the good deposit had yielded in fruit over the course of their lives. Which tells us that life simply defined is a test of faithfulness. Is a test for the next life. And so in this parable, these servants are summoned to their master upon his return. 
And the first servant, verse 16, is brought before his master who had returned and said, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. The one mina that was entrusted to him bore ten. Apparently he had lived a daring life, aggressive in his investment, took risks, and here was the result. Now, lest you think that this servant was boasting about his accomplishments and earning God's merit and, or favor through his merit and works, notice how he says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Not I made ten minas more. But the servant understood that it was the deposit itself that bore its own fruit. That is to say that it is ultimately Christ in us who is doing all the work of his own kingdom in and through us. We are just vessels. And if we bear any fruit in our lives that pleases God, it's because although we are like fragile jars of clay, we have this treasure in us to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And yet as fragile vessels, it's when we know ourselves to be his vessels and live consciously seeking to be faithful instruments for his service. That's when God is pleased to bless the work of our hands and cause our lives to bear fruit. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I worked harder than any of them. But it was not I, but the grace of God within me. And yet he did work truly harder than anybody else. And so that's what the first servant did. And so in response to him who bore 10 more minas, the master says, well done, verse 17, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over 10 cities. Isn't it interesting how he says, you've been faithful in a very little thing, in the smallest of things. But that's the truth, isn't it? Life on earth, is just this teeny tiny thing in the big scheme. It's just this short, temporary life. And you know, all our problems are when we start to think and believe and behave as if this one life on earth is everything. And that's when we start to suffer such anxiety and burden and distress. It all comes from a warped perspective that's stuck in the particularity of our immediate circumstance. But here Jesus tells us plainly and even to free us to see how short this life is. And by extension, how grand and how large is the life yet to come. Because for those who are found faithful while on earth, he blesses them with unimaginably great eternal rewards. The one who bore ten minas he has given proportional to his proven faithfulness. Authority over 10 cities. Again, look here, the, the grace of this king. This is what it's like to be a servant of Christ. It's not like being a slave of the kings of earth. It's not the life of a peasant. But to be a servant of Christ is to share in his kingly rule. That he intends to entrust to us even more in his eternal kingdom that we might be co-regents who reign with him In his very own authority. God is not stingy, beloved. God is generous beyond our wildest imagination. And here, even the rewards that God gives to his people, they are all undeserved blessings. But he does give them in proportion to how we've demonstrated ourselves to be as faithful stewards on earth. But doesn't this all assure us 
how it's so worth it to gladly give up everything and serve him with all our might because this is what's in store for us. Look at the riches he bestows on his servants. It's not just a house, although that would be undeserved and amazing in and of itself. I'd love to have a house in heaven. Or he doesn't even say a bigger house than the one you had on earth. I'll give you two houses, but we're talking about the scale of entire cities that he will give. This is how generous God is. You see, Jesus reveals these eternal truths to us that we might be encouraged in our faithfulness to him. To know what a privilege it is to be his servants. Now, a second servant was summoned. And in giving an account of his life, he said, verse 18, Lord, your mina has made five minas, less than the ten of the, of the first servant. But to him, all the same, the master gives his generous reward. But just proportioned to his faithfulness, he says, and you, and you, faithful servant, you will receive five cities for the five minas you bore. Look, he was equally pleased with the second servant. The difference in the number of cities is just highlighting the difference in the stewardship capacity because everyone's different, everyone's unique. But the fact that this incredible blessing that, 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 that he could share in the rule and authority of the master is bestowed on him all the same at all. That shows that God delights in all of his servants irrespective of how much fruit they bear. And that God is not ultimately interested in what you can do for him. Whether you bear 10 minas or 5 minas, he is pleased to welcome into his kingdom all who have earnestly sought to be faithful with what has been entrusted to them. Because God cares about the heart, the attitude. He doesn't need your productivity, but he wants your worship, your trust, your desire, which is then to be expressed in how you live. And that is what was wrong with this third wicked servant. It was ultimately his heart that secretly despised his master. Look at verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Now notice how he views his master. That's the key. Do you sense his attitude? Well, first, he had the gall to say to his face, you're a severe, harsh master. And to say, how I understand you to be, you're the kind who only takes from your servants. You slave drive us. You make us do your dirty work. And we get nothing for it. You bother us and you burden us with what we don't want to do. You're unfair. Now that is blasphemy. In the face of his immense grace of bestowing such riches upon his faithful servants, this one says to him, you are cheap. Oh, that was his great sin. Not that he didn't produce enough in and of itself, but that his unfaithful stewardship and unproductivity was stemming from an underlying heart that resented his master. His passiveness in life was just a symptom 
that revealed the enmity that was buried within. Though bearing the name of servant, he was part of the citizens who hated him and said, I do not want this man to reign over me. Hence, his master exposes his heart in verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servants. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. That's what you say about me? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? That at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. He's saying, look, your own words condemn you because your excuse is evidently half-hearted and inconsistent. You don't even mean it. Because if you really thought that I was a severe man who demands every ROI, return on investment, why didn't you at least think and act to put the money in the bank and reap anything, even just a few pennies of interest, without any risk? But listen, you didn't even try. You didn't even try to be faithful with what I stewarded you. And this is abundantly clear because you hid the thing inside a napkin. You treated my Mina so carelessly. If you actually meant what you said, you should have put it in a safe or something, let alone deposited it at the bank. But even your own words condemn you and testify that you never cared about this good deposit. You never cared about the gospel. You never cared about the kingdom of God. This is the great indictment, you see. Apathy. Indifference. Listen, God doesn't need anything from us. If He wanted 10,000 mean as, as quickly as possible, He could just speak it into existence. He doesn't need our service for that. We would just slow Him down. But He desires our hearts that trust Him, that see Him for how good He is, And so we serve Him with all our lives. And as a wondrous byproduct of that, we bear much fruit to the glory of His name. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart and He examines the secret attitude. Church, we must be watchful and honest about our own hearts. When you hear God's Word calling you to serve Him with all your life, to spend your life in finding ways to serve His kingdom as maximally as possible. Is there a secret attitude buried within of resentment? Is the reason that you are passive, if you are, uh, passive in pursuing Christ wholeheartedly, is the reason because ultimately you don't care? If so, you must repent of it. He sees your heart. Don't try to make excuses. Don't, don't, don't be like this wicked servant who tried to blame the master for his own unfaithfulness and rebellion. It will be the experience of many people on the last day who bear the name of servant of Christ that when they give an account of their lives and they are shown as unfaithful, they will offer up all kinds of excuses. But the Lord will say, You liar. You didn't even care. You didn't even try. And I know that because I saw that my good deposit was carelessly stowed away in a napkin. It was never embedded deep within your heart. You never treasured it. You never treasured the gospel. You're a false servant.
And this is the consequence, verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. But he said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has none, even what he has will be taken away. God is not a God of equal outcome. Those who are more faithful, even more is given to them. Now, before you object, as the bystanders did in the parable, think about it. This is perfectly logical. Why would an investor buy more shares of company A that is proving to be not as profitable as company B? You, you water where the grass is green when it comes to wise investment. Wouldn't the investor put, it, put more into the company that is demonstrating each quarter to be most adept at making money and growing the business? And in the same way, it's perfectly reasonable and right for the investor to pull out all of his investments in a company that's clearly just squandering money and burning cash. And if a wise earthly investor operates in this way, how much more the God of infinite wisdom? This is kingdom economy. And so all who have outwardly professed to be a servant, but wasted their lives with indifference and apathetic unfaithfulness, in the end, they will have no share in his kingdom. It will be taken away from them. And they will be gathered with all the unbelieving because that's who they are as God knows them and sees them to be. Verse 27, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pull no punches. These are some weighty words that depict a gruesome, miserable end to all who reject Christ as ruler and Lord. This is the misery of being outside of his kingdom, which tells us and points us to the fact that it's because all that is good, all that is life, all that is abundant joy and peace is found only in Christ under his loving and perfect reign. Do not believe the lie and deceit that submitting to his authority is burdensome and that it robs you of joy. No, it is paradise. It is joy and peace. It is what we were made for. Friends, this is a pointed warning to those within the doors of God's church that both the outwardly unbelieving and the outwardly professing yet inwardly indifferent are actually all the same. That they are hostile to God. And if this portrait of the wicked servant applies to you, you must repent of your rebellious heart and ask God for forgiveness and transformation. Again, let me stress, the issue of unfaithfulness here is not a matter of Christian performance. But it's the matter of the sincerity of the heart, whether or not you recognize Jesus as the good king who is worthy of all your trust, worthy to be followed and obeyed. 
until the end. As I've said in the past, the key test of the genuineness of one's salvation is not the question of, do you love God flawlessly? But it's the question of, do you love God at all? Is there any sincere desire in you to depart and to be with Christ because you know that that is far better? Is there any genuine appetite for eternity in His presence? This is the mark of regeneration. This is the one who belongs to Christ and His kingdom. And so what you must see by faith is the goodness of Jesus Christ. What joy there is in bowing the knee to Him. And what you are called to see by faith, listen, it's not a blind faith, but it is the faith that sees what God has shown and revealed so plainly. And this parable, as heavy and forceful as it may be, having ended with the shocking, violent words of slaughtering all who rebel against this master, it's what we all deserve as sinful rebels against God, but after having told this parable, what did Jesus do? Verse 28, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. To do what? To be slaughtered for rebels like us. Because he came to take the place of rebels on the cross who deserve to be slaughtered and yet like a lamb led to the slaughterhouse. Our Lord and King went to Jerusalem there to pay for the crimes of hostile citizens. Friends, this is the glory of Christ. This is what the King of Heaven is really like. This is what He is like. He is good. He is kind. He is ever giving all of Himself. He is not a severe, harsh master. But He is the most tender-hearted shepherd who laid down His life for, for His sheep who have gone astray. If you do not know Him, and if you have been wasting your life living for yourself, He calls you to return to Him. See Him for who He really is. Confess your sin and trust in His mercy which He displayed and accomplished on the cross. And entrust your whole life into His perfect and loving authority which He has demonstrated to you without a doubt by all that He did on the cross. And church, let this remind us of how good it is to serve no other king but Jesus. Let's not waste our lives on this very short little time on earth with the things that don't ultimately matter. But let's look ahead to the eternal, unfading glory that awaits us and live with the holy ambition to hear those words on the last day, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has come 
announcing his kingdom and has done the impossible work of bringing exiles into his kingdom, transferring us from the domain of darkness into his most loving and perfect domain. O Lord, we confess the weakness of our faith and how easily we can be distracted away from the task that you have assigned to us. But Lord, we ask that you would help us as we strive to faithfulness and most of all, help us to see the true beauty and majesty of Christ. Illumine our eyes and draw our hearts ever nearer to him that we might serve him with joy. We thank you for giving us a visible sign of his grace through the Lord's Supper, this sacrament. That by taking the bread and the cup, we are reminded so tangibly of how kind he is, how near he is to us, how he feeds us not from a distance, but that he feeds us with his very own self. And even now that we can be reminded and reassured of his never failing faithfulness to us and the assurance of all of his promises. And so we ask that you would help us to receive the bread and the cup by faith and that you would strengthen our faith through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.